So uh, we're in Matthew in here, so I'm just going to spend a little bit of time uh, in Matthew 5. And um, we've had the Beatitudes, and then last week Jim spoke on salt and light. And I, when I first came to look at this passage, I thought, Car, I've drawn the short straw here. Um, because the passage is a kind of, it's a preface for what Jesus is going to go on to say. Um, and it's really important, but compared to what he goes on to say, you might be forgiven for kind of missing it or going, okay, great, Jesus, but let's get to the good stuff. You know, as he starts to talk about, uh, he starts to talk about loving your enemies, starts talking about anger and how we're supposed to deal with that and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and all this kind of practical teaching. But he, he heads it off with some verses from Matthew 5. But he's, it's not as if these verses are out of place, but they're in the perfect place for what Jesus is trying to get across to the, the crowds on the mountainside. If you remember, this is still part of the Sermon on the Mount. He's not left. He's not gone home for his dinner. It's all one thing. So the Beatitudes flow on to this that then flow on to the next section that Jesus talks about. Um, and it's all about living in order to glorify God, which is great. That that's what we've sung about this morning a little bit, that we're here to glorify God. We're here to praise his name. And um, before he gets to these applications, because he gives six examples, Jesus does. We're not going to teach on these today. They're going to be over the next few weeks. He gives six examples of how our relationship to God and his word should shape our attitudes to real things that we come across. The examples he gives, he teaches about murder. He teaches about adultery, divorce, oath-making, retaliation, and loving our enemies. And as I say, we're going to cover those over the next few weeks. Um, but before he goes on to those applications, he kind of sets the tone, really, for what it's all birthed in. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, that we're to live a countercultural living. For you and I, if we're going to live countercultural lives, which is what we've spent our time talking about, that we're going to bring attention to God, that people are going to see him and think he's beautiful and want to know about him and come to faith... Actually, being in the Word of God and living by the Word of God is countercultural. I was talking to John Boston about this at the start of the service. Most people's contact, even though it's the most popular book in the world with the Bible, is probably either from a little gift that you get as a Gideon when you, you get your Gideon Bible, which um, I'm reliably told that Carl rolled for cigarette stuff, and I threw mine over a wall on the way home, um, which I was given as a gift to a friendly neighbor. So there's the Gideon Bible that you come across when you're kind of 13 and you get given it, or if you're in court and you have to put your hand on it. For the most part, although it's the most popular book in the world, people in the UK aren't interacting with the Word of God, are they? People aren't reading their Bible. Even in our churches, we're not reading our Bible. So how can we expect people outside the church to think that this is countercultural, that this is something special about it? These are the words that Jesus says. I'm going to read from Matthew 5, 17 to 20. He says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
it's quite punchy. There are people that say that Jesus was, you know, everybody loved what Jesus says. He says a lot of hard things that a lot of people didn't like, which is why he ends up on a cross. Well, it's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons. Some things, sometimes Jesus said things to get people's backs up, to actually start digging a little deeper to the kind of perceptions that everybody has, that everything is just okay, and to get behind the scenes into people's life. And he does this here with the law, with the Bible, as we would know it, the Old Testament. And the question I want to ask at the start, if you, and, and you can, I'm going to give you a moment to think about this. You don't have to answer, it's rhetorical, but it's why do you read the Bible? Why is it important? Why is it something we should value? Is it just because it is? Is it just because it's what we've always done? Why do we trust the Bible? Why do we say it's reliable? Why do we say it's the word of God? Why are we willing to put our, our hope and faith in, into the words that we read in it? In Jesus' day, the words of scripture they had, which he refers to here as the law and the prophets. The law would be the Torah, the first five books of the Bible as written by Moses. And then the prophets in this case refers to the rest of the Old Testament. In Jesus' day, what we read there had effectively been reduced to a job description. They'd read the 39 books of the Old Testament. They'd go, okay, we're doing this. We're doing that. We're not doing this. We're not doing that. The law, the, the prophets, the Old Testament, which have been put in place to help people connect with God, facilitate relationship between God and his people, had just turned into a rule book to follow. Now, if the Bible is just a rule book for you and I, then what gives? If it's just a list of do's and don'ts, then why do we read it? Why do we trust it? Now, the reason I want to put to you that I believe in the Bible is this, because I believe in Jesus. That's the primary reason I believe in the Bible, because I believe in Jesus. And Jesus believed in the Bible. Jesus believed in the Old Testament. He believed it was the Word of God. So if Jesus does, and I believe Jesus came and he died for me and he raised a new life and he's the Savior of the world, and he says it's the Word of God, then it's the Word of God. So we believe in the Bible not just because, but because Jesus did. Because Jesus says the Old Testament in this case, which is the scriptures they had, obviously the New Testament is the Gospels and the expansion on what that means for us today. But the words, even in the day of Jesus, look at what he says here. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. You see... If the Bible story, we believe in Jesus and then what we read about him, if we actually start to realize that this whole book isn't just a list of do's and don'ts, but it is a story about God, it's God's story, and therefore it's about Jesus, it's how we know Jesus, how we relate to Jesus, how we can come to worship him and be saved, then actually it starts to make sense. Now you read the Old Testament apart from Christ, and at best it's confusing. At best, it can be a bit irrelevant, actually, because it's a bit archaic. It's a bit, what has this got to do with us today? C.S. Lewis famously said this of Christianity. He didn't say it of the word of God, but he said it of Christianity. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I want to put to you that's what the word of God is like. 
actually, it's when we get to grips with the word of God that we see everything else. That we start to understand the world that we live in. We can start to understand what it's all about, what it's for. Until we realize that these precious words are not just some words on a page that were relevant 2,000 years ago and aren't today. If we start to grasp how significant it is for you and I today, it will change everything. And this is why Jesus goes into a bit of detail here at the start of some teaching that he goes on to bring as he almost adds his interpretation, if you like, of the law. And how often when you get a, um, you know, if uh, Labour came into power today, I've seen a petition actually online, you know, we love petitions in the UK, don't we? And it's a petition that says, oh, the Conservatives lied, surprise, surprise, or a politician lied, surprise, surprise. And so because they lied, we need to get Labour in power because they'll obviously tell the truth and won't lie as well. That's how I read it anyway. Every time there's a political party comes in, every time something new happens, they want to put their own authority on it, don't they? You say, that's right, you know, they've currently got a Conservative government. Let's say the next government, next general election is, is Liberal or is, is Labour or whatever it might be. They'll, put, they'll want to put their own stamp on it, won't they? They'll say, well, these policies, these things that we did, they weren't very good. They didn't benefit the country, but these things will. Every time, everyone wants to put their own mark in it, a fresh start. And I think sometimes, as Christians, we can make that mistake with the Bible. We can think that the New Testament is the excuse to say, well, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. Don't need the law and the prophets. It's a bit irrelevant, really. We've got all this. What do we need to go for this for? But actually, Jesus says here that it doesn't work like that. There may be some of you that say, well, I read my Bible, but I just want to read the New Testament. I don't read the Old Testament. Well, Jesus here basically says the Old Testament, the law, the 39 books that come before Matthew are really, really important. And they're really important for us here in Chesterfield in 2016. He says, I've not come to abolish it. I've not come to get rid of the old, but I've come to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, nothing will pass away. It will still remain until it's all accomplished. In other words, until Jesus comes back again. Until we're with him forever. We have his word. helpful way of thinking about it is like this. Imagine the Old Testament law, those books that, you know, you get to Leviticus and you think, oh, I really don't understand what's going on here. And, and different bits and pieces that you're like, this is, this is hard work for me. One and two chronicles. Hard work. I'll tell you why, because I've read it already in one and two kings. And it's a, honestly, a bit more boring way of telling it than one and two kings tells it. You think, well, why? Why is this all here? How does this make sense? Well, it does in Jesus. When we take him out of it, it doesn't make any sense. And what Jesus is saying here, when he says, I've not come to get rid of it, but I've come to fulfill it, is a little bit like this. Imagine a sketch or a drawing, and it's by a brilliant artist, obviously. It's not drawn by someone like me. And you know what the drawing is of. You've got the outside. You've, you can tell that this is a picture of a house. Okay, and it's almost as if Jesus is saying here, well, actually, I've come and I'm adding in, the, I'm adding in a bit more detail. Here are your windows. Here's your door. Here's your brickwork. Here's what this is going to look like. He adds to the picture. He's not getting rid of it, but he's adding it. He's fulfilling it. He's completing it. 
Another way might be, imagine that the law, what we read in the Old Testament, is like water in a glass. And the glass is 60% full. And Jesus comes here and he tops it right to the brim. And says, here we go, it's complete now. It'll start to make sense once you hear my interpretation of what this means. Which is what he does with anger, and what he does with lust, and what he does with divorce. As we get onto that, time and again you will hear, you have heard it said this, but I say to you. You've heard it say, you know, if your enemy does you in, do him in. But I say to you, turn the other cheek. Love them. Bless them. He fulfills what we find in the Old Testament. The Old Testament isn't irrelevant. It's very important. And Jesus builds on that picture. It's a fuller explanation. And in one sense, he's telling the crowds on the Sermon on the Mount, listen up. You need to start getting to grips with these scriptures. You need to start understand what they're saying to you today. He goes on to say, not an iota, which is the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. Not even the smallest letter. Not even a dot. Not even a squiggle of a pen that's been written in the Old Testament law and prophets. What we know is the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, will pass from the law until the end of all things. Not a word. So when we have modern translations that are deleting things because we don't like them, We've not read Matthew 5. Not a tiny bit is removed because he says it's all of God. And if Jesus is happy with the Old Testament, if Jesus is saying this is God's word and this is something that's important to you, it should follow that it's important to people that want to follow after Jesus. And he takes his time over this for a reason. And although times change, and yes, we don't live in the Middle East, and culture and the world is very different today, than what it was when Jesus was saying this, the word of God is what we're to base our lives on today. Not how we feel, not what our politicians say, not what our culture says, but what does God say? Do we get that? Carl said this a few weeks ago, and it's great. So often, we take how we feel and we project it onto the Bible. Well, I feel like this about this issue, so therefore the word of God must be wrong or confused somehow. Instead, what we need to do is take the word of God, as difficult as it may be, as hard to understand as it may be, some things that we might really wrestle with and struggle to grapple with and say, okay, God, that's your word, and I'm going to try and bring my life in line with what you say there. And sometimes that's really hard because some of the things are difficult to get our heads around. But Jesus says he's come to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures, which is a relief to us because it means he's what they were pointing to, what, what they were all about. So take the law, for example, which says we need to be sacrificing lots of animals in order to be right with God. Well, Jesus comes and he is the sacrifice. So that means we don't need to sacrifice animals anymore. The fulfillment of all that teaching in the law, we're not breaking the law by not sacrificing animals because Jesus has come in its place. And he does that with all sorts of things. And often, the navigation for us as Christians is working out the fulfillment of what those words mean. Well, does this apply today still? Is this timeless? Is this something that Jesus has fulfilled already or something he will fulfill in the future? And that's half the battle. And that's why we have to grapple with it. That's why sometimes it's difficult to understand, especially difficult to understand if we haven't got to Jesus. Otherwise... Pigeons are still getting it in the neck, right? 
We're still killing animals if we don't get to Jesus. And not even for food. We have to get to grips with our whole of our Bible. And the reason I, I labored this is because the word of God was important to Jesus. It was the anchor for all that he did. He was rooted in it. He's speaking from it. He's, he's fulfilling it. He's updating it. And kingdom life, if we want to be people of the kingdom, as we've sung already this morning, is different to a religious life. And that's one of the points that Jesus is drawing out here, that kingdom life is different to a religious life. And Jesus doesn't want us to lead religious lives. He wants us to lead lives lives that speak of a new kingdom, that speak of a new king. That our lives would display this king to the world that we live in. And in order to get to grips with this kingdom... We have to know what the values of it are. What does it stand for? What's it about? Otherwise, we can't live in it and for it. And what does this master and commander of the kingdom look like? You know, how do we interpret the world that we live in? Is it what our mates at work say, how life came about and what the meaning and purpose of life is? Or is it, you know, what a textbook says? Or is it what the word of God says? That we were created for a purpose to honor and glorify God. That every single one of us is uniquely made and beautiful in the eyes of God. That everything is redeemable. That Jesus loves us enough that he would die for us. That no matter how low we are, how far from grace we appear to be, that everything is redeemable. That nothing is beyond God. What defines our worldview? You see, if our worldview is like that, if that's our kingdom worldview, we look at people as beautiful people. We start to see people as people that God loves and cherishes. And where there's brokenness, we want to step in and help. Because God loves them. Because they're his precious children. Or is our worldview that we're something else and actually life is meaningless and humanity and human beings hold no value? That we're not important. That there'll be something else, but hey, we'll just do what we like. You see, our worldview affects how we live our lives. And our worldview, the way that we interpret life and everything in it, needs to be found on something more than just how we feel. Doesn't it? Well, I think so. <laughs> it needs to be found on something that's secure and timeless. And that's the word of God. You know what? We really, really, really need to hear what God's saying to us. We really need to hear God speak to our lives. And I cannot encourage you enough. I don't know. You might profess to be a Christian this morning and you haven't picked up your Bible in 2016. I cannot encourage you enough to start reading this every single day. To cherish it. Every single day to be in it. What's an hour in 24? What's half an hour? What's 10 minutes on the bus? What's putting an audio tape in your car? Because I don't suggest reading whilst you're driving. Just saturate yourself with the language of God. Hear what he's saying. I've started this year. I started 15 days behind, so I'm still about 15 days behind. Doing the Bible in a year. I can't recommend that enough. Now, if you're kind of one of these OCD people, you might say, well, I'll wait until next Christmas and, and the new year. Don't wait till the new year to start reading your Bible, though. I say, oh, well, I'll read the Bible in a year, but I need to start in January, so I won't start until January. Get into it. Start reading Matthew, which is where we're spending our time. Start reading around it. I tell you it will bless you. I tell you you will hear from God. He speaks 
through his word to us today. Pray through it, love it, read it. So what to do with this word? This is what Jesus gets onto for us. It's not just, okay, great, Dan, I, I get it. It's something timeless, it's something I can hold on to, but so what? What difference is it going to make in the way that I, my life should be shaped? And this is what he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, these are the kind of pointed verses, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Dangerous ground, isn't it? If we're people that are saying, go against what the word of God says. Dangerous ground, what Jesus says here. Second, those who teach and obey what's written in Scripture, brilliant. They will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The problem in Jesus' day is that the religious elite, whether intentionally or not, were minimizing some works of the law in favor of others. That they would say, well, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But actually, some parts of the law, they would be less keen on. They might keep some of the smaller commandments really well. But some of the larger ones, we read it later in Matthew, I didn't want to spoil it, where it says, well, you've neglected mercy. You've neglected justice. Great, you're tithing your herbs. You gave 10% of your oregano. Well done. But you've not loved this person. And Jesus says, actually, all the law can be summed up in this, can't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. You've missed the big picture. I appreciate the oregano. That's great. But love people as well as tithing your herbs. Don't minimize some things. Don't be flaky on them. Jesus says, whoever relaxes even the least of these will be called the least in the kingdom. Does anybody know what the least significant law in the eyes of the Jewish people was in the day of Jesus? Anyone got any ideas? I didn't have a clue, so I consulted uh, some books. But it's Deuteronomy 22.18, apparently, and it's this. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. I can't believe that that had to be written in. That people were stealing stuff, stealing baby, baby birds and killing off mothers. and like They had to be told, no, that's something that we don't do. But they might be really good at keeping that. You know, on their way to work, yeah, check. Eggs are in that tree. Eggs are in that tree. Eggs in that tree. Stranger in the ditch. See you later. Eggs are in the tree. That's what was happening. I would like to think, even today, that we wouldn't be a bird-stealing people. Right? That we'll feed them and love them and want them in our gardens. Because I tell you, I had, uh, I had these peanuts this, when was it, over the winter, trying to do my bit for the birds. And a flipping squirrel. <laughs> he just nicked them all. And worse than that, started burying them in my lawn. I don't think it says anything about the squirrel. Just saying. Because I ain't seen that one come back. I'm joking. I'm joking. I haven't killed a squirrel. But they were saying, well, okay, well, maybe I'll lapse on this, I'll lapse on that, but I'll keep this law. And they were kind of prioritizing. Whereas Jesus says, actually, all my commandments here, it's all the word of God. It's all important. It's all there for a purpose. It's all there that you would learn what it means to follow after me. 
And as I said before, look, if we're teaching something that's contrary to Scripture, we're on rocky ground. You know, language is one of those things that some people, some ministers even, are quite liberal with their use of the tongue. And what I mean by that is they'll swear. Their language will be coarse and horrible. And you think, well, it doesn't say in the Ten Commandments, don't swear, so therefore it's okay. Rubbish. Read the words of Jesus. Jesus is really, really kind of blatantly, obviously, really. What proceeds out of our mouth comes from our heart. That if evil words come out of our mouth, then that's just the state of our heart. That we need to be careful with our language because we want to honor God with our lips. We want to honor him. We want to live for him. And for some of us, that's difficult, and it's a work in progress. But we can't be seen to be people that just make judgment calls on, well, that's not really that important, or maybe Jesus wasn't clear enough here. I tell you, if we start reading our Bibles, we'll see that he's really crystal clear on what he says and how we're to follow after him today. That's just one example. There's loads of examples, isn't there? We say, well, you know, don't do this. Well, is that really stealing? Is that really that? You know, we seek to justify, don't we? Is it okay to do that? Can I take out the squirrel? It said birds. I think it might be okay. We do that all the time, don't we? We go, oh, well, it doesn't necessarily blatantly of it. It does. <laughs> we just got to get into the Word of God. We just got to saturate ourselves with His language. The flip side of this is a real positive. It's not all doom and gloom, because He goes on to say, the reverse of that is this whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's a reward for following after Jesus faithfully. There's a reward for living for him. And even when it's hard and it's difficult to say, I'm going to take a stand here. I'm going to live a countercultural life. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to honor God instead of man. I'm going to do this instead of that. I'm not going to join in with getting drunk and all this kind of stuff because I want to live for God. Jesus says there's honor in that. Jesus says there'll be reward in that. You'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven for following after the commandments of our master and commander. And then he gives us an example of what we can do today. Because you're kind of going, okay, great, I get that. But what can we do? Here we go. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, righteousness exceeds that. So righteousness, read, right standing with God. Exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as I said before, I love it when Jesus does this, when he's really tongue-in-cheek, he's provocative. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, God. Now, in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were mean. They, were, they would keep the law. They would look brilliant. You know, if you would think, oh, where's that law-keeping man? Oh, here he is at the front. The Pharisees. They'd be the people that everyone would look to. Oh, they're the heroes of the faith. They're the people that are keeping the law. Look at how he tithes his oregano. He's amazing. I've forgotten to do that. What a hero. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that, then you're not going to make it. Now, on the face of it, that's not good news. Until we realize that Jesus is being provocative and actually calling us to a different standard of living than the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, it all looked good. But what was going on in their hearts? There was an outward perception that they were right with God. But were they right with God in here? And Jesus says, what's going on in your heart? 
What's your heart like before God? Because that's more important. Because what you look like and how you, how you display yourself to the world flows from what your heart is like unless you're putting on a mask, unless you're putting on a show, unless you're trying to deceive people. Great, deceive as many people as you like, but you can't deceive God. And God wants our hearts. A new standard of living. You see, these Pharisees, they took pride. I remember there's a story, isn't there, in the New Testament of the Pharisee and the, is it the tax collector? I think it's the tax collector. And they go to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee's like, oh, God, I love you. I'm so great. Thank you for making me wonderful. Hallelujah. And the tax collector just beating his chest. Well, I'm a sinner. I need your grace. And God says, who's justified? Who's right with God? Who's got the right heart? The answer is the tax collector. The one who's repentant before God. The one who's broken before God. The one who's real before God. The one who's not distinctly British by saying everything's okay. The one who rends his heart when it's hurting. And is okay struggling through life and not knowing all the answers but wants God. Luke 11:39. Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. There's a warning here, isn't there? That we can look great on the outside. We can pray publicly. We can even do what I'm doing. You know, we can speak at the front of church. We can hold the microphone. We can be witnessing for God. We can be sharing the good news with people, but what's going on in our hearts? What's going on in those places where we think that no one can see? The Pharisees tried to present a strong front to look like they were following God, but their hearts were far. You might say, well, I've not killed anyone. I've not stolen anything. I've not sworn at anyone. But maybe you're lusting, and we're going to get into that over the next few weeks. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you're hating people. You're not loving your enemies. Jesus doesn't want that for you. He wants our hearts right with him too. We are called this morning and every day in our walk with God to something more than just appearances. If we're to follow and trust in Jesus, you are given a new heart. You are given a new life. You are given a fresh start. We get rid of that heart of stone and we're given a heart full of God, the Holy Spirit, in order that we can live for him today. And that's the kicker. That because of this fresh start, we don't need to look strong to the outside world anymore. We don't need to care about what Larry down the pub thinks. But rather, what does my heavenly father think? Am I living to, uh, for an audience of one? Am I living just for God in the way that I'm doing things? Yes, I might offend my friends here by not joining in and getting drunk. But you know what? I'll offend God more if I do join in. What's our standard of living? Who are we living for? And Jesus comes to give us a new life. He takes all our rubbish. He takes all our brokenness. He takes all our hurts, our sin. And he dies for it. So that we're raised to new life. So that we have a new start. So that we can be his children. And it's because he loves us. And because he loves us, we want to get our hearts right before him. Not for any other reason, but that we'd be walking with God. Because he loves us and we can love him. And what are we going to do with the cross? What are we going to do with his death and resurrection? What are we going to do with the fact that God loves us? Are we going to put on a front or are we going to live for him? That's the challenge that Jesus issues. Do we just put on a front or do we really live for God? That's the goal here. The goal is to live for God, to live for an audience of one. 
And you know what that means? That means it's okay to be broken. It's okay to say I'm hurting. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to not have all the answers. It's okay to, um, yeah, just be struggling through life with whatever reason. And we're to ask for repentance for our sin, our hard-heartedness, because we can't hide our insides from God. We can't hide our brokenness from Him, and He wants to restore us. He wants to make us right. He wants to make us whole. He wants to make us all that we were created for. A really good question as a challenge for you to ask this. First time someone asked me this, it was really awkward. But I've got used to it now. And it's a really good question to ask. And start thinking about. It's to ask one another, how's your walk with God going? How's things with Jesus? Are you walking well with him? You've been in the word lately. What have, what have you read that's just captured you? Because so often we say, you know, I have loads of people, and this is great, I, I love you for it. And you say, how are Grace and the kids? That's great, but please ask me, how's things with God? How's your walk with Jesus? Because just as I'm in a relationship with my wife and I, I relate to my kids, I relate to my God. And we need each other, don't we? We need prompting. It's a great question to ask. Maybe it's a dinner time conversation, I don't know. How are things with you? How are things with God? Are you walking well with him? It will feel really awkward the first time you ask someone, but forgive them, love them. They're doing it because they love you. They're doing it because they don't just want to look at outside appearances, but they want you right in your heart with God. And that's the same for us as leaders of the church. We love you. Sometimes we might say things that are difficult or difficult to get our heads around. We might not understand it. And we don't have all the answers and we're on a journey too. And there might be things we believe at the moment that in time we might change based on our theology and understanding of the word of God, not how we feel. And there might be times that we have to have difficult conversations with you, but we're doing it because we love you. We're doing it because we don't want to settle for an outside appearance, but because we want your hearts right with God, because Jesus wants our hearts right. Jesus wants us living for him, so so do we. And we'd be doing a disservice to God in, in leading and shepherding if we're not doing that. And actually, we can do that to one another, can't we? I believe in the priesthood of all believers. That by asking that question, how are you getting on with God? How's your walk going with him? And not so that we judge people and say, ha oh, you haven't read your Bible this year. But so we can spur one another on. So we can encourage one another in our walk with God. And you know what? There'll be stories that come out of that. Oh, I tell you what, I read this this week and it's amazing. Has that ever happened to you? Just the Bible comes alive and you go, oh, it's just come at the perfect time. We should share those stories with one another. We should encourage one another with how God's speaking to us today. It's a really good question that we can ask. And with all that in mind, I want to leave you with this thought. Your aim and goal in life should be to live like Jesus, not like your neighbors. Unless, of course, they're trying to live like Jesus too. In which case, I'll allow that. But to live like Jesus. So often, the standard for what is right is what someone at work says or what our neighbors say. How about the standard for how we're to live is what Jesus says? We're to live for him. The goal is to be like him, not like our mates. It's his expectations we should care about, not our mates' expectations. It's his words that count. 
It's his life that takes death and brings life. It's his life and his death upon a cross that takes hell and gives you heaven. That's what makes the biggest difference. It's Jesus. He says, so that means, this is the good news, we can have a, right, we can have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. And it's a new way of living. And it's having our hearts right before God. So we're going to just uh, finish up now. It's these great words in Psalm 51.10. It says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. No matter how you're feeling, how far from God you feel, you're not beyond redemption. You're loved. You're loved. Because you're loved. No matter what we've done, no matter how far we might feel in this moment, even if we're carrying hurts, whatever that might be, expectations of others, failures, things people have said of us, we can get our heart right with him this morning. 